y'all. So this is it. This is this is the podcast. This is Jezebel Goes to Seminary, and I'm your host, Meredith Thomason B. Jezebel, in that whole phrase. Uh, I thought it would be fun if we started out this season with discussing the concept of liminal spaces and entering liminal spaces. So the first two episodes are going to be dedicated to what is liminal space and what does it mean for us to truly enter liminal spaces. So for us to have a working definition that we all are going off of when I talk about liminal space, I'm I'm talking about a waiting area, a space before true trans transition and transformation. And it's hard to enter those spaces that are unknown, um, those spaces that are foreign and produce fear. But I believe that when we can truly face our fears in the presence of God or whoever you call your higher power, um, the liminal space is what allows us to enter the floodgates, right, to ourselves. Um, It allows us to enter ourselves and ourselves with God and and to all those that we come in contact with. And so, you know, when we enter the liminal space, and I believe this is why it, it is so scary, is because we in some ways are rejecting a lot of normalcy, a lot of normative practices. Um, and for a lot of us, we are living in normative time. So when we enter the space of the unknown, we're rejecting that normalcy. And the question is, why would someone leave the comfort of what they know, which is obviously going to be a huge block for people in trying to enter liminal spaces? Like, why why would I leave what I know in order to enter the unknown? Um, but I, I have this belief truly that in those liminal spaces, we can actually see like, yes, it's uncomfortable to be in this space while also finding comfort in that space. And it's a huge paradox. And, you know, I believe that we have to come to an agreement that we have to learn how to live in not normative times, but paradoxical time. So when we enter the liminal space, we're accepting and we're embracing the paradox and this paradox is what brings about transformation. So we enter and reject normalcy and liminal space is, is meant to cause us to, to ask questions, to bring up concerns, to think about what will happen next. We don't know for sure. None of us knows for sure what is going to happen tomorrow. But but if we can practice entering these liminal spaces of transition and transformation, we can at least prepare for tomorrow. So a little bit of background on my journey of liminal spaces. Um, over the course of quarantine, I just started to wake up earlier with intention. And intention is a big thing when you want to plan on waking up earlier than, you know, the average Joe, right? I'm not I'm not the 5 a.m. club, guys, by any stretch of the imagination. I am not part of the 5 a.m. club. But I but I do dedicate a, a good chunk of my morning um, for reflection, for reading, and contemplative prayer. And you know, that's that's split up 
for me with reading and listening um, and, and just really taking on the role of student in the morning. And in this state of silence that I, I typically take in the morning, um, it's about 30 minutes. So, you know, there's about 10 minutes of being guided into this contemplative state. Um, and then it's about 20 minutes of, of just being still, which has been and was super difficult for me uh, in the beginning. Not, not going to sugarcoat that for you. Um, especially from a person like me who it is hard for me to sit still. Um, It was hard for me to sit still longer than one minute. So imagine, you know, 20 minutes of stillness. I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to be able to do something like that. Uh, but But it posed a challenge for me. And as an Enneagram type three, we love a good challenge. (laughs) And I have found that in challenging myself to sit still, that it's become integral for the rest of my day. And so in this moment and in these moments of silence that I'm taking, you know, I'm becoming very centered and, and very grounded. And just so we're clear, there is no right way to meditate. That's a very prescriptive um, Western norm. And I just want to emphasize <laughs> for those of you who maybe have wanted to meditate, but I'm like, I'm not going to do this right. Well, there's there's no right, there's no right way to meditate. Um, and so if you've ever been turned off to meditation because you feel like you cannot quiet your thoughts or whatever it may be, um, the thing that I have found so much comfort in uh, with meditation and prayer is is just about being present. You know, in, in prayer, it is about being present. So thoughts, especially, and this is this is really emphasized in um, contemplative practices. Um, thoughts are going to come, thoughts are going to come and thoughts are going to go, but you know. It's more about how are you in the moment of meditation? How are you in the moment of contemplative prayer? How are you reacting to those thoughts? You know, do you let those thoughts while you're in practice consume you? Or are you able to recognize that, hey, this is a thought, this thought is happening, and I'm going to come back to center? And, and in centering and contemplative prayer, you actually can choose a sacred word. And the sacred word is something that you can always come back to in your practice. Um, The sacred word is what brings you back to center. Um, And it's so helpful for me, like I said in the beginning, um, because it was just so difficult for me to sit still. And my mind is always racing, um, always a thousand bajillion million ideas are flowing between these two ears, guys. So when I was introduced to you know, contemplative prayer and this idea and notion about a sacred word and, you know, whenever your thoughts drift, just come back to your sacred word. I was like, to quote Joe Biden, like, that's a bunch of malarkey. But to quote Joe Biden again, that's a bunch of malarkey. Like there, there's, it's okay. Thoughts are going to come and go, but it is truly about the power we all hold and possess to let it go. 
the thought's going to come and then returning to our sacred word, it, it gives us that grace of knowing like thoughts are going to come and go. I'm aware of this and I can move on. And in in all honesty, too, it's not like I just woke up one Monday morning and said, I, you know, I'm going to sit in silence for uh, 30 minutes. Just going to do it. Just going to go dive on in. And that's not how it works, at least for me. <laughs> I, I gradually increased my time of silence. And as I've practiced and strengthened my mind during the sessions um, in centering and contemplative prayer, you know, I've been able to be. And there's certain things that I'll repeat to myself, obviously, but one, especially if I can't remember my sacred word, if I find that maybe my sacred word isn't what is really anchoring me in this meditation, I always go back to this one scripture, which is be still and know that I am God. And that has been something I constantly go back to when my mind drifts. You know, I can at least, without a doubt, always recall, be still and know that I am God. And James Finley, who is a teacher um, and practitioner um, at the Center of Action um, and Contemplation, out in New Mexico with Richard Rohr. Um, he does a few meditations and um, at the end, how he actually does it is that you will take that phrase of be still and know that I am God. And um, each time at the end of your contemplative practice, what you do is you take a word away each time. So be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am be still and know that I, be still and know that, be still and know, be still, be. Did y'all feel that? Did y'all just feel what I felt in just saying all of that and repeating it? I mean, it's like I'm not even in a meditative state right now and I am just feeling good. And, and you know, the Eastern practice um, with um, more traditional Buddhist meditations, um, and, and acts of contemplation, they use bells to signify the beginning and the end of a practice, which again, I have found super beneficial and incredibly helpful in centering my thoughts and centering myself in the moment, um, of my meditative practice. And, I just got to tell you guys this because it's it's a little bit crazy, but when I'm in this practice of contemplation, there's something so incredible that happens every time I sort of go through that phrase um, or chant my secret word in my mind. I, I can feel like, I don't know if this happens for everyone when they're in silent meditation, but I get this incredible sensation uh, on the the very back of my neck, um, this tingling sensation. And, you know, I, I feel like that is such a, a present moment of me being present with the divine um, is when I am so still that I can feel the, the tiny 
most microscopic hairs on the back of my neck just rise a little bit. And the sensation that I feel when I'm truly silent and I'm truly present with God, it, it, it just, I don't know, it's crazy. It's truly a phenomenal sensation. And I, I just kind of got off on a tangent there. But again, I would have laughed at myself had you said like a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, hey girl, you're going to meditate every day and you're going to love it. I would have been like, okay, no. I'm not going to love it. Okay, no, I'm not going to do it every day. But again, it's it's kind of of coming into yourself when you have have been forced to face a problem of self, which I talked about this in in the trailer, you know, I realized that I needed to clean up my spiritual life. And so part of cleaning up my spiritual life Um, was introducing certain practices that were going to help me do that. So the fun thing too is that in accepting this um, and in accepting this incredible moment of stillness um, just reminds me truly of, of how beautiful and big God's love is for me. And, you know, I I will use God. I will use cosmic Christ. I will use um, universal Christ. I will use the universe. I will use the spirit when I'm talking about the divine because my God is so big. My God is genderless. My God is so big that my God encompasses so much more than a lot of us give credit to. So I just want to make that very clear that. Your your God and my God may not have the same name, but I, I do hope that your God and my God are serving the same purpose. And in those moments of contemplation that I'm having in the mornings with God, with the divine, are so remarkable because it reminds me of that gift that we all possess and contain within us, which is to like enter those liminal spaces. And the space, the space before true transition and transformation, you know, it's foreign, it's unknown, it's scary. But when we enter them, remember, we're rejecting that normalcy. So it's going to feel uncomfortable because we've been told our whole lives, like we can't enter those spaces of the unknown, that we can't enter the spaces of our our unknown selves in order to know ourselves. So, you know, in terms of these spaces, in terms of entering them, while yes, it is uncomfortable, and the discomfort is there. It's also, again, comforting. And so when we're able to question, right, when we're able to seek out these spaces of stillness, so much can happen for us. So much can be illuminated for us. And when we're in those spaces and we're able to question, we can see that we need to be asking more questions. We need to be questioning. We need to be, as a collective, entering those liminal spaces. 
because we have the right to enter. When we enter those spaces, we are able to see that there are, there are people that have been in those spaces much longer than we have. And I read something this morning that I just, I just thought it was so beautiful. Um, and and it, it's that, you know, for those that are at the bottom, for those that are living in poverty, they are already so far from, from whatever top that when they fall, it's not, it's not that far of a fall because they're already so far from this normalcy, this normative structure of society that when they fall and when we all fall, you know, those at the bottom do not have much, much further to fall into grace. And it's us at the top. It's us at the top that have such a hard time accepting grace, have such a hard time accepting and embracing this space because we're, we're so far up. But, but when we embrace the discomfort, who knows what it can bring you? Like, who knows what it can bring you? And, you know, in terms of coming out of this normalcy and entering these spaces, these liminal spaces, right? They're uncomfortable. And these liminal spaces might be everything opposite to what you've been told or what you've been taught. But guys, we we have to enter them, and and Richard Rohr says this in his book of Everything Belongs that cheap religion successfully teaches us how to stay in these sick systems, these sick systems of of normalcy, and and he talks about how there are places in those six systems, those society, they tell us where we're supposed to be. Society is not the authority. Power, prestige, and possession over everything else, individual power, individual prestige, individual possessions over everything else. And we've got to work to come out of that. That has been ingrained in us. We have been indoctrinated to believe that we must have power and possession over everything. And so we have to work on coming out of those systems and into this liminal space in order to have a truly transformational moment. And I'm not just talking about a transform transformational moment with God. I'm just talking about plain, simple, human transformation of self. And he goes on to say that, you know, there can never be personal conversion without working for societal transformation. So without societal transformation, if we are not collectively working for that and, and working for that by working through our own self-transformation, our own integration of our shadow, and saying, I want to reveal my true self, the self that, no, not what you were supposed to do with your life or not what you believe people wanted you to be, your true self, your true self of belonging. What were you made for? 
So if we're not integrating those and working towards societal change, then yeah, personal conversion, personal transformation is not going to matter. And a great example of this using scripture is if I am working towards a personal relationship with Jesus, for example, but I'm not working towards a collective relationship with Jesus, then then the personal relationship is void, right? Like there has to be this collective consciousness that we are all working towards because it ha- because it can't not be that, right? Like there is no societal transformation unless there is personal conversion and there's no personal conversion unless there is societal transformation. It's like the worst law logic possible, but it, it is so legitimate and it is so real. So we can't we can't sit in in and of ourselves alone. We can't personally just think like I'm good and because I'm good, I'm I'm personally going to go to heaven. Like I'm getting into heaven because, you know, I I did all these good things. Bruh, no. <laughs> like no, that's not what it's about. God didn't just send his son, send a piece of himself just for me, just for little old Meredith, just for little old Jezebel. Uh-uh. When the scripture says to be more like Jesus, or when we hear someone in an organized religion say we need to be more like Jesus, it doesn't mean that we get to sit back and judge others. It doesn't mean that we get to sit back and point out the sins of everybody else when we can't even recognize, accept, and acknowledge our own sins. And and recognizing your own sin isn't like a one-time shot kind of thing. It's not like I'm saying, okay, I'm sinner. And now I'm good. No, remember, it's entering those liminal spaces over and over and over and over again for true transformation. It's not like transformation just happens and now we're transformed, right? Like it's a collective, it's a continual and consistent practice of entering the unknown and entering the mystery. And I like to think that it is so hard for people to do this, and myself included, because we've grown up in a time of logic and reason. So like mystery and mysticism, people people think, what is that? Why would I do that? And I say to that, well, why not? Because you know, and I I grew up in a household that celebrated Christmas and celebrated the fantastical character of Santa. And just to bring it down to earth for you guys, I don't know if you remember the days when we believed Santa was real, but there was always this this mystery of Santa, you know, coming to your house with these reindeer and landing on your roof and you wake up Christmas morning and All of these presents are here from this man who magically travels the world all in one night. Like, that's a mystery. That was a mystery. And as children, it was mysterious. And so when 
scripture says, you know, calls for us to have childlike faith. It's because innocence and imagination has escaped us as adults. But I believe we can call in that imagination. And I believe that in calling that imagination in, we can see that we don't have to take everything at face value, that we must enter liminally and go deeper. Going deeper and allowing this mystery to be unanswered. Or if it's unanswered or not unanswered, just knowing that maybe there isn't there isn't one right, strict, prescriptive answer. And so I believe, you know, I believe we really have to do more of that. We can't just live in an ideology. We need to live in the practice. We need to live in the presence of the practice. And, you know, there will always be times when we are on this sort of precipice of entering those spaces. And there will always be a time where fear will be present. Like fear, even as a person in seminary, even as a person in in theology school right now, it's not that I don't have worries. It's not that I don't have stress. It's not that I don't have fear. It's not that I don't have doubt because I'm not perfect. And I think something in scripture that always I find comfort in is just knowing like, I don't need to be afraid. Jesus tells me not to be afraid. God tells me not to be afraid. But like I've just said, I am afraid. I've been afraid. But even in my fear, I have to trust that it is okay to still enter, even though I'm afraid it is okay for me to still enter those spaces. And even though I'm afraid, I can enter those spaces with compassion. I can enter those spaces with an open heart and an open mind. It's so much about letting go of what I think I know. Because between me and you, I don't know much. I don't. And not knowing much, yes, will cause me discomfort. But even entering and having this fear and doing it in or anyway, it might cause suffering. It might cause and will likely cause pain. But if we don't enter those spaces because of of those factors, then what are we doing? So something that's been truly remarkable for me in this time of my own spiritual journey is just understanding that sometimes pain is necessary. I rejected pain for so long. I rejected feeling anything for so long. And again, it's, you know, living in this paradoxical world of darkness and light and those two forces coinciding and living together and they have to live together. We have to experience pain in order to experience joy. And, you know, in my spiritual journey, I've come to understand that I have extreme gratitude 
for my pain as a child, for the pain that I experienced in my childhood. I can sit back now and say, you know, my dad having a mental illness and me growing up in a household where we would find him eventually in his underwear in the backyard with a gun that at the time, I didn't understand the ramifications. At the time, I didn't understand necessarily what was going on. I just knew I felt a lot of shame and I knew I felt a lot of guilt because of that. But little did I know that that shame and the guilt um, was part of my spiritual path. It, it, it became part of it. And, and it caused so much pain and it caused so much much suffering, not just for myself, obviously, but as a collective family unit. And it's taken time, about 16 years, to come around and say that I'm grateful for that pain. But because of that pain, I've been allowed to see things differently. And so if we can actually, instead of disconnecting with pain, instead of rejecting this pain and Instead, embrace it and say, this pain has allowed me to see and will continue allowing me to see and will allow me to see others who are also in pain and see them with compassion. Because maybe it is about having less empathy for others and having more compassion for the few. I'm not sure. But I do know that if we really want to see the world, We've got to embrace our darkness and embrace it in a way that says, I'm going to wear this sin like a badge of honor. And I'm going to wear this sin so that others know they don't have to be perfect. And I'm going to wear this sin so that I can enter those spaces of, of transformation and help others do the same.